0: Welcome! You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge, 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, and today on the show we have a special interview and talk to share. Both are about how COVID-19 affects things from communications to climate change. We hope you'll enjoy, we hope you find this episode fascinating, and we hope it gives you some perspectives on how other countries are fighting against the pandemic. Let's get into it. First up, we have Ari Jakobowicz. Managing Director of MIT Africa, interviewing McCalla McKay, the Chief Operating Officer of the Director of Science, Technology, and Innovation in Sierra Leone. DSTI seeks to quote, transform Sierra Leone into an innovation and entrepreneurship hub. In her work, McKay implements Sierra Leone's national innovation and digitization strategy to make technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship integral to the development of the country. In this interview, McKay discusses how the people in the government of Sierra Leone are responding to COVID-19, what the directorate is doing, and how technology is playing an important role in conducting real-time analysis, communicating updates, and connecting people with each other in the situation. Without further ado, McCallum McKay. Uh,
1: McCallum McKay, the um, COO of uh, the Sierra Leone Directorate of Science, Technology, and uh, Innovation Agency is here. Uh, So welcome to the Misty radio podcast, Nicola.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Um, So uh, just to start, can you give us a sense of what the feeling right now is, sort of across Sierra Leone, how people are feeling and how people are responding to it, the pandemic?
2: Well, generally speaking, there's a lot of um, anxiety You know, there's also a lot of fears because people don't know um, what exactly tomorrow is going to bring. Um, People are concerned about our general um, readiness to be able to respond to the COVID-19, particularly seeing what is happening in developed economies. And um, already we can feel the impacts, the change in the environment, the corporate sector, you know, already has um, been hit um, by the ongoing circumstances. But um, the most important thing is the government efforts and how it is partnering with both local and international stakeholders to be able to flatten the curve. And more particularly, how it has joined several other economies in seeing how it can use um, technology to help improve the response time and also be able to continually engage um, the general populace on the status quo and the government's plan in ensuring um, that it does what it could under the circumstances to guarantee the continued safety of its people.
1: So what are the, some of the more uh, specific response ideas that are emerging from the government and maybe more specifically around the role of technology and how DSCI can um, be effective there?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, soon after, you know, state of national emergency was declared. Now, the the existing um, emergency operations center was activated to level three because of the seriousness of the, you know, because of the pandemic. And um, in that process, another pillar was established, which was that relating to data, technology, and management. So within that pillar, we do have more or less a, a, a consortium of both public and private sector stakeholders with specific goals three in particular one being how we can integrate the existing data sets to make sure we have one secure platform for real-time analysis the second um, goal there is to see how we can improve the existing connectivity and infrastructure support for preparedness and readiness and the third how we can actually mobilize national ict expertise to support seriom's response now um as some may not be aware. Um, being in the developing economy, um, we're not always um, that prepared. In so, in so much as infrastructure is concerned. So, one of the primary objectives of what we call the COVID-19 ICT response team was to focus on connectivity and infrastructure. That is, look at the existing the infrastructure of the emergency operation center and whether it can actually take the additional workload um, that was it was going to face um, with the, the COVID-19 in operation. So it meant bringing fiber optics connectivity to the, the center itself. Um, it meant, um, you know, improving its technical capacity, which includes bringing in devices for for, for the call center, which actually sits within the, the Emergency Operational Center, bearing in mind that this call center existed prior to the COVID-19 dealing with other health-related emergencies. So now we had to build another um, layer on top for them to be able to receive calls for COVID suspected cases or for, for COVID-related you know, deaths if there is um, proof of that. So quite a lot has been done with that. And currently what we're looking at is um, ensuring that the Central Emergency Operations um, Center is connected to the regional ones or rather command centers in the district for obvious reasons, to see how data could be collected in real time, how information could be shared in real time, and also um, relating to the alert centers that are going to be set up at district level. Now that has posed some challenges because, again, of the terrain and probably the locations where these command centers, you know, are being established. Um, but that has also been done. We also required um, connectivity with treatment centers and. Um, with laboratories. So data is connected real time and feeds into a centralized system, which is the DHIS2 that we have um, hosted right now um, in in Sierra Leone. So in a nutshell, this really is what um, the COVID-19 ICT response is looking at. But um, one of the things that we have really made a lot of progress on is how we have set up, um, built systems and applications to be able to enable the citizens to have access to information. So as recent as 10 days ago, we actually um, launched the uh, SMS and USSD 468, where um, citizens are actually able to get updates on the status of um, COVID-related cases. They're also able to get information on tips, how they could, you know, have um, information on preventative measures um, to protect themselves and their families, and also to be able to, give an indication of the kind of, of symptoms that they might be experiencing. So, and and based on the responses, they would actually be, be informed that they have to call the call center itself, which is with 117, but in the interim, isolate themselves in an airy, area location and all of that. And of course, they would have a response brought to them as soon as possible. So that has already, based on the statistics, in less than 10 days of launch, we've actually seen on the SMS we have um, 38,900 unique users. We've seen responses close to 150,000, and um, for a country like Sierra Leone, that is really huge. So you could tell there really is demand for the information. Citizens are making good use of it. And in addition, we also have established on the Ministry of Health a WhatsApp um, platform, again, a very you know, interactive where um, citizens could be able to ask um, questions. But uh, what we're looking at right now is to see how we can continue to partner with institutions like the MIT, for instance, on um, data analytics. Because one of the things um, we found, um, obviously, the government needs access to, to, to data to be able to make informed decisions on or strategies it has to adopt insofar as the response is concerned. So we are, this consortium that I mentioned earlier actually has. Um, Quite a number of, of members from the private sector including the MNOs that's the mobile network operators so um, we are able to get information from them aggregated data um, that we are using to do um, overlay on um, toll road data for instance so we are able to be able to assess um, mobility um, between and amongst districts to see how probably one affected community the other communities that they access so that the government will be able to be proactive in it in its response um, during the the this um COVID and 19 um period. So you know in a nutshell that is what um we are looking at and so far as the mobility data analysis is concerned we are actually in partnership and discuss discussions with the MIT um to see how you know you could support um, doing um you know, the data analysis, um, where we probably don't have the capacity to do so, um, so that at least based on the findings, we're now in a better position to, as the SDI and leading the COVID-19 ICT response team to be able to advise um, government on the way forward.
1: Uh, And beyond providing some of those platforms and data, what do you see as the role of the private sector, particularly the, the network operators, that in, across many African countries are some of the largest companies and have access to the most people through their networks. What do you see as their role at, um, in spreading um, information and otherwise supporting the uh, IT infrastructure aspect of the response?
2: Well, um, as I as I um, speak right now, even through um, bulk messaging, they have been able to, as part of the consortium, send um, messages to all the subscribers. Firstly, to inform them of the different portals to which they can have access to information, and. Um, they are actually working with us to see how we can add another layer to the existing communications portal and that is the IVR um, because given the, the nature of um in Australia at the moment and the number of people who are illiterate, we really have to ensure that there is access to to information through means that um people are familiar with which is the the voice um information and um Of course, it has to be diluted in in local languages, you know, um, the lingua franca, which is Creole. So we're actually working with all the MNOs, two leading MNOs um, at the moment to see how we can also add the IVR services on the existing um, 468, the SMS and the USSD. So it's another option for um, the, the, the general populace if they choose to do the interaction through voice then that facility is available. And if, if they choose otherwise, then at least there's also um, other means. So, yes, they are fully on board. Um, we engage with them on a daily basis, um, have meetings sometimes twice a day to be able to understand where all the partners are and what further interventions are required. And
1: these are really great, sort of, you know, high end, high tech, sort of 21st uh, century solutions. But uh, what do you see as the role of, let me say, more like low-tech solutions or, you know, older technologies such as radio or just, you know, print media or other distribution networks for getting information out? Um, what do you see as their role? Because, you know, obviously a lot of people have phones nowadays. Now, some between in that group, you have a split between the people who have smartphones and the people who don't. Um, but then, you know, there are people who might be somewhat um, out, of, out of reach of some of these networks or just not really engaged with their phones. And are there any sort of low-tech solutions, uh, for lack of a better word, that uh, you feel like could be implemented or could be particularly effective?
2: Um, Yes, there are. Um, In terms of the print media or, you know, um, radio stations, they still play a pivotal role, again, for similar reasons. Um, Yes, although we do have statistics to suggest that at least two out of every three household members have a phone, but the fact of the matter remains there's still a percentage of the population that does not have access to these devices, or probably they are in locations where they're, they're unserved or underserved so um, in terms of the internet um, penetration. So in those cases, we're also relying on the local community radio stations to be able to provide timely information in the local dialect as well to the, the communities um, in those um, affected areas. Uh, we're also looking at traditional means and working with local partners to see how, if there's possibility of using town choirs, for instance, to be able to raise the awareness um, and of course, the preventative measures of a hand washing, and now of course, there's a lot of drive to be able to to encourage people to use um, um, face masks, and also to know that even if you're using a face mask, it actually comes with certain responsibilities: how you care for it, you know, um, how you ensure it is cleaned, and um, things like that. So yes, so we're using a holistic approach. Whilst we're using, we're looking at advanced technology, we're also using, looking at non-tech you know, interventions to ensure that the general populace is fully informed of what is going on, is aware of government's in- interventions, is also informed on the partners, both local and international, that supporting government's response to the COVID-19. So
1: uh, Sierra Leone dealt with a pandemic just a few years ago, um, along with some other countries in the region. That was the uh, now, you know, well-known Ebola pandemic.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and I guess having dealt with that recently and one that required a large-scale intervention and was obviously very disruptive, you know, what lessons really do you feel like Sierra Leone and the region could have for the world um, in terms of how to approach this pandemic and how to work within communities to address some of the most pressing issues?
2: I believe it really has to do with the preparedness, generally speaking, Um, whether using um, the, of course, the best option is to ensure you use advancements in in technology um, to get um, your your country ready to respond to either COVID or any other um, related um, pandemic. Yes, it is true we were affected, um, and terribly so, by the Ebola. You know, it hit um, the economy, and it took some time for Sierra Leone to recover, and we still have traces of of that um, still in our developmental and sustainable growth. Um, But um, unfortunately, as with many other states, we were not prepared. Um, whether you're looking at it from a a, a health related um um perspective or even um, simple the general awareness or basic do's and don'ts, um it was it seemed it was very easy for us to slip back into what we had known as a normalcy. So um but having said that, um you know, now with citizens being fully aware, but we we also have to take cognizance of the fact that this is different compared to what the Ebola experience was. This is um, respiratory. So to say um, that means people in West Africa are better prepared, um, I would would say differently. Um, But again, with the continuous um, engagement, and of course, now we generally have the recollection of what we went through as a people, as a country, as a region. So um, there is more, um, you know, um, a, a lot more effort is being put into, especially ensuring that they listen to government advice and that um, they do the level best to ensure they prevent themselves from from contacting the virus interestingly um, we had a 3 days um lockdown um just um a week and a half ago and what came out of that because during that process, we actually engaged the use of drones to do surveillance in specific um, locations throughout the country. And it was amazing to see the level of compliance, close to 100% in almost all the regions that were actually um, um, surveillance. And for those that we we saw a bit of of non-compliance it would it was obvious the reasons why because of some of the existing challenges faced by those communities um, some members felt they did not have a choice but to step out and be able to get um access to basic um, amenities that that were required Um, so generally speaking um people are doing their level best to, to comply um even in communities where ordinarily speaking, they are crowded communities. Even within those communities, there's efforts being made for people to stay at home and only step out if you really have to, and if you do to ensure that you follow the hand washing um, regularly. And now as recent as a couple of days ago, it's now mandatory for everybody to wear a mask, particularly if you're going to uh, a, a government or a public um, institution.
1: So uh, you had mentioned a bit about the, uh, the economic fallout from the, the uh, Ebola pandemic, and I think this is something that a lot of people are trying to understand how to respond um, going forward, and I think the general consensus seems like we don't really know what it's going to be, but we know it will be massive, and we know it will probably last for a while. I mean, uh, you know, we, we've already seen some rumblings of this in our economy, um, so in our global economy, not just in the U.S. one. Um, what do you, what do you see, or what, according to your experience, like, were there some interventions in terms of, um, economic, uh, response that were particularly effective? I mean, was there anything like, you know, uh, disbursements of cash, just giving people money, um, to get through this? Um, you know, what's your experience with some of that?
2: Yes, in some instances, I'm um, bearing in mind um, that we do have quite a lot of small and medium um, enterprises um, in Sierra Leone. So, in some um, cases, um, yes, they had um, access to to some funds, minimal though though they were, but at least it um kind of you know helped them or put them in a position where they could try to get on their feet. Of course. These measures are not sustainable in as much as initially they might seem like the right thing to do. um, The question is, it's not sustainable. There are instances where, of course, the central bank works with the commercial banks to see how um, interest rates, for instance, could be lowered. So, if people wish to to take um, certain, you know, have access to certain loans, at least the interest rate would be something that could be business friendly. Um, so to speak. But as of now, we the government is also working with the Chamber of Commerce um, to be able to, to keep the businesses informed. And um, There are also um, non-state actors that are working with existing businesses to see how they can help them start you know, to tailor down or cut down on some of the exposures, see where savings could be made, um, give the staff the relevant information that is required, because obviously it goes without saying that there are employees and their families in turn that would be affected, you know, um, from a, a crumbling, you know, economy. Um, fortunately, we're not where we were when the Ebola hit, That's fortunate because to some large extent, although our figures are actually going up on a daily basis, we still have a very functional government. We still have, you know, businesses up and running. Um, There's still um, taxpayers who who are, you know, complying with the relevant laws. So in that respect, um, yes, Things um, and again, the government is also working with international organisations to see how we can make sure um, that it keeps the the economy um, up and running. But that having been said, um, if we do not um, continue to put our, our, our feet um, to, to, to the wheel, our hands to the wheel, to be able to flatten the curve, it is going to take a, a, a bigger a, another turn. And especially looking at what is happening in the uh, neighboring countries, Liberia and, and, and Guinea, we see the numbers going up. And um, so we're also keeping an eye on that. The good thing we've closed our borders to to our, our neighbors, Guinea and Liberia, except only for essential goods. And even that, there's um, quite a bit of monitoring at, at border points. Um, and um, if you need to Quarantine of people that attempt to come in, just so that we make sure uh, we can contain um, the virus and, and limit its ability to spread.
1: All right, thank you so much, uh, Makala, for uh, joining me on the show and uh, just providing all this amazing information. And I wish uh, you and your family and uh, everyone and so Sierra Leone a uh, a prosperous few months. And hopefully, this is something that. Can be done with quickly
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Ari. I look forward to further discussions.
0: Up next we have a song for you by Nigerian musician Tony Allen. He is most well known as the drummer for the band Kuti and was considered one of the primary co founders of Afrobeat music. He passed away on April 30th this year at the age of 80. Take a listen to his song every season.
3: Father, riding on guitar strings, hoping on a rainbow, wishing for my ego. Target practice, my free fall, landing over people, every limb is lethal. Super radar, double glazed razor, speak your sa mesa, we reflect data. Every season, part of me is leaving I don't know the reason Memories are freezing Chilly like the evening. Tasty if you need them Sweeter than your freedom If you like my words, then heat them Fate helps me carry them Blood runs my marathon Veins made of parables And paragons I travel on I ought to last To quarter past Free as the ship sails a quarter mast. I'm sort of lost, But first to us. My starships are searching for my autograph rock let my barricade
4: down, cause I know I don't
0: from a talk hosted by MIT Brazil and the MIT Center for National Studies. This year marks MIT Brazil's 10th anniversary. Since its inception, the program has been a hub on campus for engagement with Brazil. The Star Forum series brings professionals from academics, policymakers, and journalists to talk about international issues. On April 24th, they invited Dr. Carlos Nobre, an MIT Brazil program partner, to talk about how the COVID-19 crisis reveals how balancing tropical ecosystems can actually reduce the risk of future pandemics. Dr. Nobre is Brazil's leading expert on the Amazon and climate change. He is currently a senior scientist at the University of Sao Paulo's Institute for Advanced Studies, chair of the Brazilian Panel on Climate Change, and the co-chair of the Science Panel for the Amazon. Nobre received a PhD in meteorology from MIT. Now, listen to Nobre's discussion, moderated by Elizabeth Leeds, Senior Fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America.
3: The question that was posed to me was whether Amazon burning and COVID-19, are they ghosts of climate, of a climate future for the planet, for humankind? And I will try to address those two issues and I will anticipate my answer. Yes, they are ghosts to, of climate future for humankind. Let me start uh, with a quick, very quick uh, introduction of the history of Amazon occupation and development. When the Europeans came to South America 500 years ago, the indigenous population, the Amazon, uh, was estimated between 5 and 10 million people. Natives always have considered the forest and wildlife as a cultural and spiritual value. On top of that, keeping the forest almost totally undisturbed was also a way to reach an ecological balance with millions and, and millions of microorganisms that inhabit tropical forests. And there were practically no large scale cases of zoonotic diseases that would have devastated indigenous populations. They were in balance with the ecosystems with all its integrity. The main cause of almost extinction of the indigenous populations in Brazil was not slavery or assassination. By 1940, there were only 70,000 indigenous people in Brazil from several million up to 10 million to 70,000. They were going extinct. In fact, the main reason for that, uh, it was contagion, contagion, to diseases brought about by Europeans. There were many episodes of miners, land grabbers, or land specula- speculators giving gifts such as clothes to indigenous communities contaminated with pathogens such as measles that provoked unspeakable genocides. That was the main reason for the almost disappearance of indigenous populations in Brazil, and also many other parts of the Americas. Science is more and more demonstrating that all benefits of keeping tropical forests standing, they are of course a natural mitigation of climate change for retaining hundreds of billions of carbon in the biomass and acting as a very important carbon sink. There is a tremendous potential for an innovative bioeconomy and a bioeconomy of forests standing and rivers flowing. And science is trying to unfold that potential. And now the pandemic does not leave any doubts about the necessity of keeping tropical ecosystems in balance to reduce the risk of a continuous succession of epidemics and pandemics. The Amazon is burning, our house on fire. Let me address a little bit the importance of forests, tropical forests in particular. Tropical forests are unique ecosystems in terms of its interaction with the atmosphere. They exist where there is a lot of rain and short dry seasons, usually shorter than three months. That's why they call rainforests. They are not only a passive response to a climate driver of large rainfall in the tropics. They in fact create conditions, conditions for more rain. It's almost a, an evolutionary Mechanism for survival. They keep evaporation all year round at very high levels in the Amazon. The water vapor injected in the atmosphere increases rainfall levels, especially during the dry months of the year. Therefore, the forest, by drawing soil moisture deep down with a deep rooting system, creates the conditions for more rain and for its own maintenance. In sum, the forests very efficiently recycle water and increase overall rainfall by 15 to 25%, primarily during the dry season. That makes the inside canopy environment very wet, and fires rarely propagate inside the forest, the undisturbed forest. That is, the Amazonian forest is resilient even to lightning strikes that ignites fires in many dry forests and savannas across the globe, like the bushfires in Australia, the fires in California forests, Siberia, etc. But the forest is under three anthropogenic drivers of change, acting simultaneously and synergistically. The first one is regional deforestation that reduces the water recycling process and increases surface temperature. About 17% of the Amazon forest has been cleared, and another 6 to 10% is in various stages of degradation, fragmentation. Second, climate change due to, to global warming also increases temperature, has increased about 1.5 degrees the temperature in the Amazon, and also has an overall effect of increasing the seasonality of rainfall with an annual decline of most of the Amazon basin. The third anthropogenic driver is warmer temperatures, forest degradation, and proximity to man-made fires also has increased significantly the vulnerability of the forest to fires. As I mentioned before, undisturbed forests are very wet. Even a lightning ignited fire would not propagate, but now the Amazon forest is becoming more and more vulnerable to fires. These three drivers are being large tracts of the forest very close are bringing very large tracts of the forest very close to a tipping point, I will explain. Observations re- reveal that worrying picture of the proximity to a tipping point. Over, sur- over southern and eastern Amazon the dry season has increased by three to four weeks over the last 30 years, with longer dry season in areas heavily deforested. Temperature during the dry season is much warmer, two to three degrees in those areas. Evapotranspiration over those areas, the evaporation plus transpiration, has also decreased, and also This carbon sink, this natural behavior of tropical forests, all forests in the world, but also tropical forests, the carbon sink strength is dangerously declining in those areas. This is southern eastern Amazon, mostly in Brazil. In the 1980s and 90s, the Amazon was a sink of 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere which was about 7 and 8% of total emissions of carbon dioxide. Today, that number is much less, and some tracts of the forest in southern Amazon have become carbon source. So the combination of warmer temperature, fragmentation, increased deforestation, and man-made fires has created the conditions for much more forest fires. That is becoming much more vulnerable to fires, the forest is becoming. And the most worrying observation is that in the southern and eastern Amazon, species of trees which are typical, very wet climates, they are showing a higher mortality rate. It seems that this process of a large scale change is already occurring or about to occur. So considering all those things together, a science, science today indicates that between 50 to 70% of the Amazon forest is very, very near an irreversible tipping point of It may be turned over a dry savanna in 30 to 50 years. That would mean losing something like 200 to 3 billion, 200 billion to 300 billion tons of carbon dioxide, complicating even more reaching the Paris Agreement goals. It it would also mean a gigantic loss of tens of thousands of plants and animal species. And of course, spilling over an incredible number of microorganisms, increasing tremendously the risk of future epidemics and pandemics. The situation today is very worrying. Deforestation rates almost doubled in the last 12 months and fire reached a 10 year record last August. Pollution caused by the fires last year in the Amazon made the Amazon in August the most polluted place on Earth. And we know, let's say, just looking at how COVID-19 vulnerability of people to pollution, polluted cities like New York City, the risks of death by the virus is much higher. So that might happen again during this year's burning season. Let me move now to to talk a little bit about the the uh, COVID-19. When and where the next pandemic will emerge? Uh, What is really a likely path to our next zoonotic pandemic? Ecological imbalance make it quick and effective for pathogens, virus, bacteria and other pathogens with high host plasticity to move to birds, bats, rats, monkeys, insects, cattle, pigs, chicken, etc., and then uh, animal-to-human spillover viruses. An amplification amplification of human-to-human transmission as we've seen happening, unfolding at the gargantuan scale during this pandemic. This is the case for many of the well-known epidemics and pandemics uh, in the last, uh, perhaps, 100 years, but certainly in the last 40 years. HIV, Ebola, bird flu, swine flu, MERS, SARS, Rifty Valley, fever, West Nile virus, Zika virus, Dengue, chikungunya, and and, uh, the new coronavirus. A dangerous zoonosis is really appearing every four months. Tropical deforestation fires change radically the complex ecological balance between microorganisms and animals. Corridors of contagion are constantly and growingly being created by miners, hunters, colonists, timber loggers, land grabbers that can carry new pathogens to urban centers and spread quickly and eventually globally wet markets, bushmeat, illegal trade of wildlife, all of that is present in the Amazon. Really, it's not clear why no global zoonotic pandemic originated in the Amazon to date, since all factors of disturbance and risk are present in there. Perhaps sheer luck, one might say. Let me just uh, address briefly one very serious issue that we are very concerned here in South America in the Amazon, which is the vulnerability of indigenous population in the Amazon to COVID-19. The national crisis in Brazil and other Amazonian countries due to this pandemic uh, has led to a relaxation of law enforcement in the Amazon against illegal mining in indigenous territories and land speculation and grabbing, That was a process that was going on for several years, did not start this lack of law enforcement. 80 to 90% of deforestation fires in the Amazon are illegal. So it's a wild west type of environment. COVID-19 can seriously bring serious threats to indigenous and traditional population. A study published this week indicated that up over 80,000 indigenous population are under the risk of death due to this new coronavirus, which is something like 8% of the total, total indigenous population in Brazil. That can only be avoided with a very strict lockdown of those communities until the pandemic is completely over. And of course, health assistance, to those populations, something very rare. So, very large tract of indigenous population are at a greater risk in Brazil today from this pandemic. Uh, why these two things, Amazon burning and, uh, and pandemics, may combine and are becoming ghosts of uh, a climate future? Any failure of not reaching the targets of the Paris Agreement of keeping the global temperature increase below two degrees may present tremendous risks to the planet. For the Amazon, as I mentioned before, global climate change, deforestation, increased vulnerability of fire puts the tropical forest at the brink of a tipping point of large-scale salvanization that might happen over three to five decades, resulting in a gigantic spillover of viruses, bacteria, and other pathogens to humans, increasing dangerously the risk of unpredictable zoonotic epidemics and pandemics. COVID-19 is the most serious warning that we must seek immediately sustainable pathways for humankind. That calls for restoration of ecological balance of all ecosystems. But particularly tropical ecosystems. That's where it houses millions of different species of virus, bacteria, and and other potential uh, pathogens. Massive forest restoration also brings the natural climate change mitigation solution. One hectare of restored forest in the Amazon removes between 12 and 15 tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere a year for about 25 years. A natural climate change mitigation solution. COVID-19 has brought to all of us globally the enormous sacrifice of flattening the contagion curve to save lives given the capacity of health care units. The earth has also a limit to its capacity. Climate change presents a great risk of exceeding such capacity, and we must also flatten that curve of risks by reducing emissions of greenhouse gases urgently and increasing removals of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, particularly carbon dioxide through a massive forest restoration program, a global forest restoration program. And this forest restoration program is very important to happen also in the Amazon. As I mentioned, the Amazon, large fraction, perhaps 50 to 70% might be turned into a dry savanna within three to five decades. One way to fight that back to reduce the risk, not to eliminate it, but to reduce is restore large fractions of deforest areas. As I mentioned, uh, cattle ranches, uh, livestock farming is very low productivity in the Amazon, less than one head of cattle per hectare. So if we move to a sustainable intensification of existing activities there, we may have very large area, something like 300, 400,000 square kilometers. And we have to restore forests, particularly in southern and eastern Amazon, to try to reboot, let's call it, reboot the the water cycle, reboot the capacity of the forest to recycle water efficiently, to increase rainfall in those areas, to reduce the increase in the dry season, length. So that's one way, one strategy does not really guarantee saving the forest, but at least we have to move in that direction. Let me just conclude by by saying, uh, with respect to the Amazon, uh, climate change and pandemics, we are already at a crossroads, very close to an irreversible tipping point. One clear learning from the pandemics is that we have to listen to science as Greta Thunberg has been echoing for climate science. Listen to climate science. A recent Gallup poll indicated the trust in science has been high all over the globe. Perhaps one of the few good news that the pandemics is bringing about. And the growing anti-science and fake science movement is somewhat weaker, but did not disappear. Protecting human life is showing global collaboration of the scientific communities of almost all countries. Lessons learned from this pandemic must serve to prepare all of us to face the gargantuan risks that climate change poses to life on Earth and to our own survival. We must right away raise planetary health at the same level of importance as human health. In that way, protecting tropical forests, especially the Amazon, is an urgently necessary global endeavor to be carried out by all Amazonian countries and by all of humanity. Let's raise the voice of science to guide us for a sustainable future. and. Our voice in unison to save the Amazon.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Nobri. And uh, before we close the forum, uh, would you like to make any final comments uh, before we say goodbye?
3: Yes, I just want to make one comment because this was organized by MIT. You know, one idea that came to my mind uh, because I, you know, I did my PhD at MIT. At that time, it was called Meteorology Department at the Green Building, beautiful building, from 1977 to 82. And then, of course, MIT always was in my mind. During the five and a half years that I spent at MIT, got to to get to know Many people from engineering, from physics, from technologies, even from biology. So I could see what wonderful creative environment MIT is, inspiring environment for not only forming us scientists, but also, you know, creative new ideas. And MIT, of course, after that has become one of the leaders in finding solutions for a sustainable planet. So it occurred to me, and I, I start discussing this very, not very much, but still it's an idea that I hope I will be able to motivate some people, including MIT. Why don't we create an MIT in the Amazon? Why don't we create a school with the quality of MIT in the Amazon? Associated with MIT, MIT could help in the creation of this. Let's bring high tech school of forming also, scientists forming the entrepreneurs that we need in the Amazon for sustainability, doing the state-of-the-art research that that really is the basis for any new economic model, understanding what's going on in the Amazon. Why not having uh, a university or a school I prefer to call a technological institute, we are actually calling the Amazonian MIT or AMIT, Amazon Institute of Technology. So I would like really to end this uh, uh, very nice conversation with you, really raising this issue. Why? Because we need to find a sustainability pathway for the Amazon. We need to improve the quality the size the strength of science and technology in the amazon so it's not only necessary to do outside of the amazon we have to bring this capacity to bear into the amazon so my final remark would be to save the amazon not only a global uh, a global endeavor a very urgent one but also we have to bring knowledge. We have to construct a knowledge society and, you know, having an Amazonian MIT would certainly help that a lot. I want to thank you very much, Professor Liz and all colleagues for giving me the opportunity to talk to you.
0: Thank you very much to Carlos Nobre and McCallum McKay. Misty Radio is a project from MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is produced in collaboration with me, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, Ari Jacobovitz, Eduardo Rivera, Justin Leahy, Noreen Das, and Rosabelli Coelho-Quesar. Special thanks to Marco de Paula for editing assistance. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge, 88.1 FM. We'll close out with the song UFO by Japanese duo Pink Lady. See you next time.
4: 見つめりだけであ wakatte 確かめたいわ
5: menso ni dejado que ahí andamos por las calles más notorias y en los antros las mujeres más hermosas por un lado nada en esta vida es fácil batallamos que el dinero de donde viene que nos miran sospechosos que por qué tan al pendiente Soñé este momento. Están Gabriel, Ya se escuchan las mentiras, las envidias y amenazas. Los que no se han soñado. Que hay niveles Seguiremos trabajando si se puede Disfrutando de la vida Y sus placeres